All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Amen in the AM. It's good for me to be here. I realize that I feel a little bit like uh, the fans that paid a lot of money to come to see Steph Curry, and the coach decided to arrest him, and uh, we're going to put in the bench uh, last week. Again, this week, surely not. But Sandy is still in Orlando at the Gospel Coalition Conference for work on the board for Gospel Coalition. So we can't begrudge him that uh, ministry to the broader body of Christ all across the country. So we'll, we'll be glad for that. This will show us whether or not, in fact, uh, the promise is true that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That, uh, is, that, is that possible? Is that true? Can I, can I do this? Can I teach this class today fruitfully and faithfully in a way that you'll go, well, you know, you know it was the same Bible. It wasn't the same messenger, but it was the same Bible. So that's my prayer, and I'm, I'm glad for the prayer just now to remind us of that, that it's God that does all of the, the good things in our lives and in our hearts. So we're asking him to do some great things for us this morning. I'd like you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 22, which is our text for today. It is interesting that this text parallels perfectly uh, with Psalm 18, not perfectly in the sense that every exact wording is the same. <clears throat> That's not exactly true. They were written at different times, same composition, but one is more polished. The psalm is the more polished composition. All the grammar and spelling has been corrected for that one. It's for public use in liturgy. This one is more like the primary source document, the rough draft that is slid right into a historical record, and it was meant to be heard more than it was meant to be written. It was an oral history. It's the troubadour coming around to tell about Robin Hood and Richard the Lionhearted and all that. Well, here is the tale of a heroic King David and what he said at the end of his life to sum it all up, his, uh, his great goodness and, and love for Christ. I have to tell you, I'm afraid you're going to have to work a little harder than usual maybe this morning as you've got a lot of blanks to fill in on the sheet that you've got. Um, I'm not as experienced a, a blank maker as, as Sandy probably, and we're pressed for time, so mostly you just have a whole lot of blanks. You go, i got to listen to everything this guy says if I'm a little OCD and i got to fill out everything there. So sorry about that, but, uh, but we'll be able to get there. Uh, we're going to begin with uh, the first blank, and that would be uh, from the very first verse. And it's going to tell us about David's humility. This is the background of the song. You know, you hear a, a great song on the radio, you like it, and then you even like it more when you learn the rest of the story behind how it happened to be written. Well, this is the rest of the story behind this great song, um, and it says this. David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. You know, David's humility is seen in this verse in that in the background, it's very clear, David writes a song about God for all of David's victories. He understood very clearly that these victories did not come from him, they came from God. And he wanted to give God the credit and the praise for that. All right, so to help set that tone for you, we sang to God be the glory to remind us that great things he has done. We didn't contribute a bit to our salvation. If it had been up to us and to our good works in order to get into heaven, we wouldn't be going to heaven. No one in this room. Think of the saintliest man you know in this room who just gets up at this hour of the morning every morning, not just for amen Bible study. He reads his Bible and studies it, not just when he's around other people. He just does it on his own. Even that guy isn't making it to heaven unless God 
makes a way for him. Unless Jesus dies in his place, there's no way. So we need to remember that, that all good that has come into our lives and through our lives is from him. All right, so a trip down memory lane for some of you and a history lesson for others of you. Um, in January of this year, a man died, and it was big news. USA Today covered his obituary as well as other national publications. Stevie Wonder sang and spoke at his funeral. Um, he himself had led the gospel choir at Michael Jackson's funeral. He was a big deal and a strong believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. His name was Andre Crouch, and along with the disciples, he, uh, Andre Crouch, Crouch and the Disciples was a band in gospel music, but kind of blending between gospel music and rhythm and blues back in the late 60s and the early 70s. And he wrote this song, which many of you will remember, called My Tribute. How can I say thanks for all the things you have done for me, things so undeserved, yet you gave your very life for me. The voices of a million angels could not express my gratitude. All that I am and ever hope to be, I owe it all to you. To God be the glory. To God be the glory for great things he has done. Same point as this older Fanny Crosby hymn, but updated, powerful, coming from a black voice that many in the white community had not heard before and now heard for the first time. And it's a great, great song. A great way... To, t uh, to summarize your life instead of, I did it my way. It's to God be the glory. So, we're going to start there, we're going to end there, and that's where David starts, that's where David ends, and now we get into David's song. We see the background behind the song, he wants to go point all the glory to God, now we come to the song itself. And we begin with verses 2 and 3. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. It's all about the Lord. At the very beginning of this uh, psalm, the very beginning of this song from David, and he mentions ten different nouns that might be used to describe the Lord. The Lord being that personal name for God. The name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The one who is I am, who um, I am that I am. As he reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush. That Lord could be described as rock, fortress, deliverer, God, rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, horn of my salvation, stronghold, refuge, savior. Ten nouns that pile up quickly to describe God. One of those ten you needed to hear this morning. Now you can say, well, I, I needed to hear all ten. Yeah, I, I did too. I mean, they wouldn't be all there if we didn't need them all. But what's the one of those ten that you most needed to hear this morning so that you might please the Lord by doing something about that description of God in the rest of your day or in the rest of your week. So you want to look at David's head here in these verses. This is his theology. This is the God that he worships. It's all about the Lord and these 10 different nouns that are used to describe them. 
But there aren't just 10 different nouns in these verses. There also happen to be, um, in these verses of David's head, 10 repeated pronouns. I'm going to suggest to you that the pronouns are as important as the nouns. What are what other? I don't see 10 different pronouns. Yeah, you do. My, 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 my. You can say, well, no, that, that's, that's subjectivism. That's not that important. What's really more important is these objective nouns that are true of God. Those nouns can all be true of God and they benefit you, they benefit me, nada, nothing, not at all, unless he is my God, my Savior, my rock, my fortress. Martin Luther was great about how he would stress the importance of this personal pronoun, this first person personal pronoun. In his Galatians commentary, this is what Luther said. Read these words, me, for me, my, with great emphasis. And accustom yourself to accepting this me or my with a sure faith and applying it to yourself. Do not doubt that you belong to the number of those who speak this me. Christ did not love only Peter and Paul and give himself for them, but the same grace belongs and comes to us as to them. Therefore, we are included in this me. Man, I, I don't know, you know, I don't know you nearly as well as Sandy knows you, and you don't know me that well either, but I just have to ask, can you put the my with all ten of those nouns? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Is he your rock, your fortress? So that, yes, I will not fear because he's mine. He is for me. It's not just objective and out there somewhere. It's for me. When I was in seminary, I had a professor who had a British accent. So, of course, he was smarter than anybody else there. Or it sounded like it. And uh, he was quite the critic, the social critic, too. He was very critical of American spirituality and Christianity. And there's a lot to make fun of of course, and so he would sort of make fun of us American evangelical Christians from time to time. And one of the things that I remember he made fun of, or he kind of scoffed, was our hymnody and our spiritual songs, that they all tended to be about me and about my heart and my life, and, and this all occurred to me, and it's all very subjective, and it's not objective theology, and that's just wrong, it's pitiful, Americans are, are puny. And I remember feeling kind of defeated as I left class and thinking, all right, I'm going to have more objective theology in my hymns that I sing and the songs that I sing. And I started thinking about it more over weeks, actually. I was reading the Psalms. The Psalms are full of me and my and we and our. They're very subjective, very much testimonial. And I realized... You know, he's not quite right. He's right on a lot of things, but on that one, I don't think he's quite right. If we can't give a personal testimony to the things that we're talking about in First and Second Samuel, it really isn't that valuable. It's not that valuable for us. It's not that valuable for other people because most people don't want to lecture. They want to know how this has impacted your life, how it's changed you, changed your family, changed your heart. And so we move then from David's head 
in verses 2 and 3, these 10 nouns, to David's heart. We can see that there's a shift in the song here at this point because the subject moved from being the Lord. It's not objective. They're talking about the Lord pointing to him. No, the subject becomes I. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. There is going to be this shift back and forth in voice throughout this song from the Lord becomes the subject of a section, and then I am the subject of a section. I, David, I, the author, the one who is speaking, is going to, you know, affirm a great many truths. And it is in that alteration between the objective and the subjective that we learn a lot for our lives today. And we can put ourselves right in there with David. We can let him be our voice, and we can speak the I or the my through him. So from David's head, the ten nouns, now to David's heart. He is speaking himself. It's his own personal testimony. And that's the first thing I want us to see about it. It is personal. It's I, I, I. There's a lot of the first person singular here. David's given his own story. This is, if you think I'm a hero, you think I'm a mighty king, you think I've accomplished great things in Israel, well, it's not really about me. I, I, I am going to tell you where the secret of whatever greatness I have lies and it lies in him. So that's where David's coming. It's very personal. It is praying. I call. I called three times here. Once I call upon the Lord. And then verse 7, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. I called. I called. Humility is David's great virtue that we started out with. He wants to give God the glory for great things that he has done here. And that's, that's wonderful. How is humility expressed. For a lot of us, humility is expressed like, oh, shucks, you know, I, I didn't do it. It's, uh, it's, it's God gets the praise, gets the glory, but you don't really think the person means it. You're not sure that it's legit. So he's kind of pointing to God, but oh, oh really, you know, don't, no, don't pat me on the back anymore. It's okay. And yet they're kind of really saying, no, 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 no. Yeah, bring it on, bring it on. But here, David expresses this humility in his heart, and he does something that every one of us can do, but every one of us does less than he would like to. He prays. The true measure of my humility is how many things I ask God for versus, oh, I don't want to trouble God about that. I can take care of that. The Lord helps those who help themselves. Thank you, Ben Franklin and poor Richard's Almanac for that word of wisdom, but it's not from Scripture. No, the Lord helps those who cry to him for help, who ask him for his mercy, and he gives it freely, abundantly, but we need to ask him. Well, it's humbling to ask, right? You know how hard it is to ask somebody else for something. Gosh, I, I left my wallet at the office. Could you pay for my lunch today? That'd be awkward. That'd be embarrassing, especially with a total stranger sitting here now. I just... You, you wouldn't want to do that. We don't want to ask somebody else for something. And yet David prayed, called upon the Lord three times here. You see his heart also in that he is powerless, and he is very quick to acknowledge that. 
He uses these verbs, in, verbs encompassed, assailed, entangled, confronted, distressed. I, I, I can't fix this, Lord. It's, it's beyond my power. I am in desperate need. And then the passive voice of the verb is used. Verse 7. In my, um, I'm sorry, verse 4, the very first verse of this section. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Not, and I saved myself from my enemies. No, he didn't save himself. He was saved. He was plucked out of a disastrous situation. He was helped by somebody else. He was passive. And David's very upfront about that, very clear about that in the way he describes himself. It's not in growing, glowing and heroic terms. Rather, it is in these personal, praying, powerless and passive terms. All right, then we move to a shift in the subject again. Again, now it is he who is the subject, not I who is the subject. In verses 8 through 20, and we find David's help, his humility, his head, his heart, and now we see his help, beginning with verse 8. Well, then, after he had called upon the Lord, and in his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears, then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked, because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered His voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. And then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of His nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. This is the description David gives of his help. I was in these horrible straits, but then he showed up. He rent the heavens and he came down. And whoa, look out. When God intervenes on behalf of his beloved one, you do not want to be fighting against God. You don't want to be messing with Him. So God showed up, and the, the language that is used is very um, poetic. It's lots of images. It is the image as though this huge King Kong has now come down, and he is going to save the damsel in distress that he likes, and he's throwing machines everywhere uh, off to one side or the other because he is angry. And you don't want to make King Kong or the Hulk angry because they can do a whole lot of damage. Here comes God rending the heavens or bowing the heavens, bowing the heavens. He comes down and all of a sudden there is thunder out of his voice. There is lightning coming out of his nostrils. The wind picks up. It's God is using everything in heaven and earth to fight his battles. It's as though Tarzan has given the yell and all of a sudden now the elephants are running to him. The lions are running to him. All of creation is running to his aid. 
And David's just this, Lord, I'm in, I'm in real trouble here. Help. And all of a sudden, God shows up. The same points that we made earlier about David's um, heart here, personal, praying, powerless, and passive. Well, now it's just the reverse. Not passive, it's active. All the verbs in this section are active verbs. That he bowed the heavens, he came, he rode, he made, he thundered, he routed. It's not powerless now. It's not based on puny David. It's based on Almighty God, so it's powerful. He moves heaven, or the earth, the heavens, smoke, coals, darkness, wind, lightning. All of this is, is um, a picture of huge power. All these images that he piles up to show the power of this huge giant coming down to take care of the one that, he, that is calling to him. Whereas David was praying, God is here answering prayer. Verse 7, he heard my voice. And that's all it took. God heard my voice and he rallied to my care so immediately and so powerfully that it made a big difference. And David's heart was personal, crying for help, and David's help was personal. Why did God get involved? Why did he intervene? One answer in the first verse of the section, another answer in the second verse, or the last verse of the section. First verse of the section in verse 8. Why did, David, why did God come down? Why did the earth reel? Why did the heavens tremble and quake? Because he was angry. Sometimes we're frustrated by things that happen to us in this life and it's not going well at all, our lives are a mess, and it's just not right. Lord, that cannot stand. That's just unjust. You cannot let that continue to happen in Memphis. You can't let this happen in my family. Lord, this is not right. You're mad? Then help God understand why he should be mad as well. Oh, God? God doesn't get mad. Oh, yeah, God gets mad. God is perfectly just. Injustice angers him. Now, he also has a long fuse. But don't confuse the long fuse with a lack of faithfulness to his promises. God is not unfaithful. God is not slow, as some people count slowness. But he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9. So God may confuse us about his anger because he waits, he waits, he waits, but the only reason he's waiting is because of his mercy. He wants more and more people to throw themselves on his mercy and to be saved because when he comes back, he is going to clean house, just as this description gives. And there will be thunder, and there will be lightning, and there will be wind and darkness and fearsome earthquakes because God will judge the earth. Until then, he pleads with us to come to him. Why did God intervene in David's behalf? Because he was angry. Lord, this is not right what's going on with me. I don't ask for myself, but I ask for your own namesake. Please come to the aid of your church. Please come to the aid of your people. Please help because we are trying to help him see the injustice of what is happening, and that if he sees that injustice, it will stir his wrath and get him involved. Second reason that he gets involved, and it's, again, personal. It's because he got angry that somebody was after me. It's uh, King Kong gets angry because that blonde is being harassed by some other animal or somebody else, and so he's coming to her aid to protect her, and he is big and mighty and strong, and he gets angry, and his nostrils flare. And we want to see those nostrils flare, as they do with Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. He gets angry at death. And you just, 
hacked off at sin. And so he's, he goes to action. But the second reason that is given at the end of the section in verse 20, why did God do all this? Why did he bring me out into a broad place? Why did he rescue me? Because he delighted in me. He delighted in me. I know, I know, I know. You are tempted just as I am tempted to think that, well, yeah, he delighted in David. I mean, David was a man after his own heart. Of course he delighted in him. But I don't think he delights in me. Can I remind you of Martin Luther urging us across the centuries on the strength of Galatians 2.20 to remember that Christ loved me and gave himself for me. And you can put your name into that me. He loved you and gave himself for you. You've thrown yourself on his mercy. You are his child. You are his son. You are his warrior. And he cares about what happens to you. So things aren't going well. You're in deep distress. And it's because of your sin. Then repent. And give up? No. Repent and know that you are forgiven. And that God will come to your aid. This great and mighty God will come to your aid because he delights in you. Not because of anything super special about you. But because he sees you through his son. All right, we move uh, on to the next section here. Again, a shift. Again, the language becomes first person singular, not so much um, the he, 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 but it comes back to me, me, me. Verse 21 um, through 30. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. From the you to the I, yes, verse 21 begins with the Lord dealt with me, but it's me, my, me. Uh, in that verse, and then it reverts to I, I, I. I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not wickedly departed. His rules are always before me. I was blameless. I kept myself from guilt. Really? Does anybody stumble over that? This is David writing this. This is David writing this in 2 Samuel chapter 22. Most of you have been around for the whole ride, right? You read... 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. And Bastion says, one commentator put it, how on earth can David write this with Uriah's blood on his hands and Uriah's wife in his bed? And he says, I'm blameless. I've not done anything wrong. I am perfect. That's why you're helping me. I deserve this help, Lord. How do you answer that one? Some commentators want to say, well, <laughs> um, this psalm was written way back in the earlier part 
of um, 2 Samuel. It was written 2 Samuel chapter 8, before Bathsheba in chapter 11. And it says, you know, David now has been um, cleared of all of Saul's troubles. Saul's dead, and Ishbosheth has been routed, and so all of Israel has now come together under David. And also, all of David's enemies have been defeated. So the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Mosquitoites, all of those groups have been, uh, have been defeated before him. And, uh, and so he, he's feeling pretty good about himself. So he can say, I'm blameless, I'm, I'm the man, I am the good guy at this point. And that's one way you could possibly take this. This was written before he was a sinner. But I think you all know that when was, when was the before David was a sinner? That would have to be before he was born. And even, I mean, in sin, my mother conceived me. He's the one who says that. I've heard Sandy mention that verse many times from Psalm 51. That, no, there was never a time when David could have said this if he really meant, if he's really talking about his works, his good works, if he's really talking about his self-will, that he can make this happen, if he's really talking about his wishful thinking that, oh, Lord, I think <clears throat> I faked it pretty well. I think you think I'm a pretty good guy. I know I'm not, but I don't think you know it yet. There's never a time he could have said that. So what David's talking about here, <clears throat> I think, my opinion, <clears throat> I guess Sandy will hear the tape. He may come back and correct it next week, which would be fine. That would be all right. But I think David understands perfectly well that he's not talking about his works, his will, his wishful thinking. He's talking about his heart. He's talking about his hope. He's talking about what God has done for him and not what he's done for God. He's talking in much the same language that Peter uses after he denied that he even knew Jesus three times. And that's even more painful because Peter had said, hey, look, all these other turkeys may abandon you, Lord, just as you've predicted, but I won't. I don't care if I have to die. I will die with you. And Peter, really? I tell you, before the cock crows today, three times you will deny that you even knew me. And sure enough, it happened just that way. And in one of the gospel accounts, Jesus makes eye contact with Peter after that third time and just crushes him, breaks his heart. He goes out and he weeps bitterly. All right, now he's seeing Jesus for the first time alone on the sea, shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's seen him with the 12. He's seen the risen Christ. But now on the shore of the Sea of Galilee in John chapter 21, Peter is coming face to face with his Lord. They had breakfast together. Jesus brought all the fish. The professional fishermen didn't catch anything, but Jesus supplied a huge catch, 153 large fish. Only a fisherman would put that detail in John 21. So John, the son of Zebedee, you know, as he's writing down the number, oh, what an unbelievable, we caught 153 large fish that quickly right there. So pretty amazing. But Peter, come with me. So Peter and Jesus are walking off, and Peter's first thing Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? More than these others do, presumably? Maybe more than these fishing nets and these other. Do you love me more than these? Peter looks down, I'm sure. He says, Lord, you know I love you. Well, feed my sheep. They go a little bit farther, and okay, I'm glad we got that over with. Peter, just one more thing. Do you love me? Lord, I love you. Then feed my lambs. John 21, 17 says, the third time Peter said to him, uh, the third time he said, Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? Peter was hurt. 
because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. I do know all things, Peter. I know everything about you. I know all of these sins that you have committed publicly and very, very passionately. And I know all about it. And I know your heart. And I know you love me. I know you're sorry. I know you've asked for forgiveness. And I just want you to know, I've not only forgiven you, I'm putting you in charge. You're going to lead this ragged band of disciples, soon to be our apostles, and they're going to reach the rest of the earth. Peter, I'm restoring you to your position. That is the sense in which David can say, I am clean from all unrighteousness, I'm blameless, I've done what's right, because I have availed myself of the great privilege of confession. And I used Psalm 51, by which to confess my sin to Bathsheba, about Bathsheba and about Uriah, one of my mighty men that I set up to be killed. I have confessed that before the Lord. I know I'm a failure as a father. I know I've messed up in so many different ways. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he does. So that David can say, you know my heart. You know all things. You know my heart. I've not abandoned you. I've not given up. Every time I've gotten knocked down, and I've gotten knocked down a lot of times, I've gotten back up because I believe that you are a merciful and a forgiving God. And he is. And there's another reason that I think we can take this text in this way and we can get a sense of what David's hope is looking forward. It's not in his own record. His hope is in his seed or his offspring in the very last verse of this psalm. Oh, well, let's go ahead and look at it now. We'll get there in a minute. If we don't get there, we got to look at it for sure. The very last verse. Great salvation he brings, the Lord brings, to his king. He shows steadfast love to his anointed, that would be Messiah, and to David and his offspring forever, David and his seed forever. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, this incredible promise has been given to David that it will be in your seed that the kingdom of God will fully come on the earth. You will never lack for an heir to sit upon the throne. Your dynasty will be forever, David, And so David takes that and understands that in his seed, that is the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15, the seed of Abraham in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed, Genesis 22, the seed of Isaac, the chosen son of Abraham in whom all of the nations of the earth will be blessed in his seed, and then again, the seed of Jacob in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed in Genesis 28. And then the seed of Judah in Genesis 49, that out of that tribe of the 12 sons of Jacob or Israel will come the Messiah. And David understands in 2 Samuel 7, and again in this psalm that he writes, I think at the end of his life to sum it all up and to give God the glory for everything that has happened, it's in that seed that I have hope. In great David's even greater son, in the anointed, the Messiah, in the seed of the woman who will come through my line, That is the one in whom I have hope. So his hope is not in his own works, his own willpower, his own wishful thinking. His hope, rather, is in his heart. Lord, you know my heart. You know my heart. You know that I need your forgiveness and I've asked for it. His hope is in what God has done for him, not in what he has done for God. Now, this general principle, um, or this specific principle, 
argument in verses 21 to 25 is made general in verses 26 to 31. That God adapts himself to the person appearing before him. So if the person coming before him pleads for mercy, God shows mercy. If the person before him is worthy, then God treats him in a worthy manner. If the person before him is wicked, then God treats him wickedly. Well, that doesn't work, does it? God can't treat anybody wickedly. And that's the danger, the, the difficulty of the translator in verse 27. With the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. You, you, you get crooked too, kind of. But you're not crooked. You're not a crook, Lord. You're, how do I put that? The NIV translates it, with the crooked, you, sow your, you um, show yourself to be shrewd. That you know how to punish the ungodly without yourself becoming ungodly. And that's incredible that God can do that. So that's David's hope. Key central section of this psalm. It seems like Pharisaic self-righteousness, but I don't think so. I think it's going a different direction. Next section is in verses 31 to 37, and we find David speaking about his hands and what God has done, the Lord has done, he has done, you have done. It's all, again, about God, but God is spoken of in these four different ways. God, Lord, he, you. It's all pointing to God. Um, let's pick it up with verse 31. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. You did all of these things for me, Lord, and I give you thanks and praise. Don't you sometimes feel a little uncomfortable when the great athlete who's being interviewed after the great accomplishment just says, well, I just want to give all praise to, to God who did this. And you kind of, on one hand, yeah, that's great. Then he goes on and on. And you think, this isn't appropriate. I mean, you just did some great stuff there. Just acknowledge it. Just let the interviewer you know, say, you did well. Say, well, thank you very much. Now, my team helped. That's good to recognize. My God helped. That's great. The coach had a great game plan. Yeah, talk about all of them but acknowledge that you won the victory. It's not just that God did it all and you just sat passively Why God did it. No, David, you went out there and you were incredible. Your military prowess was amazing. At your feet, you were able to get up those mountain heights and get up on those rocky fortresses without turning your ankles or anything. You were quick. You were amazingly skilled with your sword. I mean, you look like Aragorn, son of Arathorn out there with the Lord of the Rings, you know, doing all this quick sword action. You took out enemy after enemy after enemy. David, you were the man in these battles. And you, you're stronger than most. I mean, in your hands, that bow that is the latest technology, we'll talk about bows and technology a little more at the very end, but you can bend this, uh, this bow of bronze. It's, it's a wooden bow, but it's reinforced with steel, so it can really fling even longer, and you can bend that thing because you got some some serious guns on you here. They wouldn't have used that guns term, but you know, you, you got some muscle, David. You are something else that you can do all of this. And David acknowledges it. Yep, I, 
You know, I could run, I could run fast, and I could run surely, and I, I, I was really on top of my game that day because of the Lord, but it's the Lord's work in me. So you got this balance um, in David's hands between our work and God's work. Yeah, God did all of this, but it was God working through me that he made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me securely on the heights. I could go up on those mountains and on those crags and on those fortresses without fear because I was just, I was feeling it. I was in the zone. He trained my hands for war. Yeah, I'm a good warrior. I've always been a good warrior because of God's help. And he trained me practicing on bears and lions, watching the flock. I can bend a bow of bronze with my arms because of practice and because of God's endowment that he gave me. He's given me a shield of salvation, and it was his condescension that made me great. He had to come way down to bring me way up. And he's given me a wide space. It's the, the bucket looked like an ocean as I'm draining threes from way out there. It's like he put me in a broad space here. It just seemed like time stopped. My feet didn't slip. I could see it all. Acknowledge that God did it through you. That God gave gifts to you. It's not humility to say, oh, shucks, no, I, I didn't do anything. It's humility to say that, um, point to others, you know, point to the coach, point to the other players, point, and point to God who gave the, but to acknowledge, yeah, I don't know what got into me that day. Yeah, I was the fastest time I've ever shown before. Yeah, I don't know how I was able to keep my mind on the course so that I could drain that putt. I, you know, so often I've come back. I mean, the year before when I was playing the Masters, I had some trouble in the head, but this year it all came together. I, that's okay to acknowledge. There is a part that's our work. And then there's a part that's God's work, that God did all of this. And that's what we see going on in this section, which is pointing to the Lord. It's very much like Michael Davis's sermon last Sunday night, trying to explain to us this very, very difficult mystery that God is perfectly sovereign and that we are also responsible. That somehow God works, but we work as well. So in his text from Philippians chapter 2, it is um, our responsibility to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I'm supposed to do it, but God's going to enable me to do it. It's a mystery. How do we put those two together? I'm not altogether sure. But I do know that for us, as we leave here today, we are not to cross our arms and, and just uh, fold our hands and say, well, God, if any money is to be made today in my business, you're going to have to make it. I'm just going to sit at my desk and wait for the phone to ring. Only a few of you laughed. Others of you were like, well, I was planning on doing that. I... <laughs> Lord, I hope that patient will suture herself right up. And, you know, I just, uh, I'm not planning on doing it. I'm just going to let you operate. Lord, I am going to go into court, and then when they call on me to defend my client, I'm just going to bow in prayer and trust that all will work out well. Don't. It doesn't glorify God. You take the gifts that he's given you, the training that he's given you, the calling that he's given you, and you give your whole heart to it, knowing that unless he helps you, you have no hope of success. He is the vine, we are the branches, but Lord, once we are abiding in you, we can do all things. I'll slip out of this section right to the previous one, uh, verse 30. I love this verse. By you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. That is, for me, the Old Testament version of Philippians 4.13. I've already mentioned it once in here. Most of you know that verse. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ 
who strengthens me. Well, this is the Old Testament equivalent. With your help, by you, I can run against a troop. By my God, I can leap over a wall. I can do amazing exploits with God's help. I just want to, I guess, challenge, exhort, or encourage. I'm not sure. Maybe for different ones of you, it would take on a slightly different nuance. I want to encourage you to have confidence today as you leave here and you go into that work that God's called you to do. You go into that family that God's called you to lead. You go into that marriage that God's called you to be a lover in. And you do it with confidence. Instead of, oh, I'm such a jerk, I'm a worm, I'm a, I'm a horrible sinner, I'm really not that great anyway. My high school friends made fun of me, picked on me, I mean, I've, I'm not that much. Or I was big back then, but now I'm not that great. I'm, hey, is God great or not? Did God make you or not? Did God die for you on the cross or not? Does God intend for you to serve him with gladness and with much fruit and so prove to be his disciple or not? Go for it. Be confident. Leave here saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Leave here saying, with your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. I can love that woman and get through to her hard heart and we can overcome this clash that we're having. I can show mercy to that child and not just be this overbearing dad, always having these high expectations. I can come across in a different way. I can acknowledge my mistakes. We can make, get off on a new foot. I can do these things through Christ who strengthens me with the help of my God. All right. David's heroics is how we wrap up with verse 38. He's, uh, he's about to the end. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me seek under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he didn't answer them. I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them, stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You don't get this kind of verse in a women's Bible study that much, you know, so. <laughs> just, just enjoy it, guys. You know, like, yeah. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. Shift is back to I, 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 what I accomplished. But how did he accomplish it? Yes, he did something. And so that's what we see in the first part when the subject is I. Is, it's because of what David did. I pursued my enemies. I didn't turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through. They fell under my feet. Yeah, that's because of what you did, David, but you recognize that it was really because of what God did. And so he switches to you in verse 40. For, or because, you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me, and I destroyed them because of what you did. But David's heroics are not just because of what he did and 
ultimately, then that's because of what God did. It's also because of what these enemies did. And so he switches to they. They looked, but there was none to say. They cried to the Lord, but it was too late. They weren't sincere in their subservience to him. And so I beat them as fine as dust. You delivered me. You kept me as the head of the nations. These people whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. They obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart came trembling out of their fortresses. The nations all around David are the big focus of many of these verses in here. David's heroics are because these nations need to be brought into submission to the great king over all the earth. And God acknowledges himself as the great king over all the earth. Several psalms do that. Psalm 47, Psalm 96, another, a number of royal psalms, of which this is another example in Psalm 18. These are enthronement psalms where God is the great king over all of the earth, and the nations need to bow before him. Psalm 2 says, kiss the son lest he be angry with you, for his wrath can come up just like that. So you kings of the earth, be warned. You better get on his right side. He who is enthroned in the heavens laughs at you and your puny efforts to build a tower of Babel or to rebel against him. No, payday is coming someday. He will judge the earth. And when he does, you need to be on his side. But the nations are not only figured in David's estimations because he wants them to get what's coming to them. He wants the nations, all of the earth, to know this one true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who chose Israel out of all of the nations on the face of the earth to mediate the knowledge of the one true and living God to all people, all races, all genders, all ages, all socioeconomic levels. He wants all people to know him and to be spared on that day of judgment. So David's heroics can be explained in terms of what he did, in terms of what you did, or God did, and also in terms of what the nations did. And now we're ready for the conclusion. Verses 47 to 51, David's hallelujah. It's a great hallelujah. Praise the Lord. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. The Lord lives. Notice the subject. It's the same subject that we began with. It is the Lord. The Lord. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock. And exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his seed forever to David and his offspring forever. It's a collective noun. It's very, very important. Okay, so just a few quick uh, blanks here at the end, I guess. Uh, better way to put it. Rock. David returns to this metaphor with which he began, the rock of my salvation. God is a great rock, providing shade in a blistering wilderness, providing a place of defense when I can get up on top of this rocky fortress and I can be spared, I can be safe. God is a rock, steadfast, immovable. You can count on him. He is faithful. So what does Prudential use for their great uh, symbol of their company to exhibit this um, faithfulness throughout many, many generations? The rock of Gibraltar, solid, secure. That's our God. This Lord also 
brings us salvation. That's what we need more than anything else. And that's what this psalm ends with, even as he had begun with. Great salvation he brings to his king. Nations are mentioned here again in verse 50. For this I will praise you, O Lord, for this great deliverance that you have brought about, this great salvation, I will praise you among the nations and sing praises to your name. That verse out of this psalm is the one verse that is actually quoted in the New Testament. It's quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15. It's quoted as a way of showing that God's concern is not just for Israel. He always has been concerned that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He wants all the nations to know him. He wants his disciples to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That's quoting from 2 Samuel 22.50 or Psalm um, 18.49. Finally, king, anointed, and offspring. Those are the terms that David describes himself with and help us understand why David was so special to the Lord. He was the king. God was the great king over all the earth, but he now established a vice regent on the earth to mediate the knowledge of him to all of the nations. David, you are my king, and on Zion I have started my holy hill. He's also his anointed. I've already said anointed means Messiah. The Hebrew is Messiah. The Greek would be Christ. So it's a pointing ahead to that one who would be anointed as king even beyond David. You get that in Matthew chapter 22 where Jesus turns the tables on his questioners and says, I'm questioning you now. Of whom uh, is David speaking uh, when the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until... Why does David call him Lord if it is in fact David? It's not David, it's great David's greater son he's pointing to. And then to his offspring forever, to his seed, this seed. We already talked about that. All right, so we close. We close with Psalm 115, verse 1. We close with another song. We started with the song of Andre Crouch and the disciples, To God Be the Glory. We close with another song. It's the song that ends the movie, Henry V, which is a faithful adaptation of Shakespeare's play, Henry V. Some of you will know it's 1989, so again, trip down memory lane for some of you and a history lesson for others of you. It goes, non nobis domine, non nobis domine, sed nomine, tua da gloriam. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory, not to us. It's a great motto. It's a, it's a song that became for my best friend back in North Carolina, one of my best friends back in North Carolina. It's the uh, song he has chosen as the alma mater of the school that he founded over there. Not to us, but to your name be glory. And I would encourage us all to take that as our motto as well today. That's a lot of stuff. May the Lord winnow it down, show you which of those ten nouns did you need to come here to hear today? Which of these aspects of David's song did you need to hear today? And what are you going to do about it? Because James could not be clearer. Those who merely hear the word and don't do it deceive themselves. And may that not be true for us. Let's pray. Gracious and merciful Father, 
who saves us. Would you please give us your help this day in the challenges that we face, some of which we already know and some of which we don't even have a clue yet. We pray that you would help us that we might live lives that give glory to you and that we never give up. When we get knocked down, we get back up again. We claim the finished work of Christ and we make ourselves available to him once again, trusting that with his help we can advance against the truth and by him we can scale a wall. It's in his name that we pray, for there is none higher. Amen.